Welcome, Dr. Tharoor, to Network Capital. Congratulations again on uh, Pride, uh, Prejudice, and Punditry. It's, uh, it's quite, quite a miracle, right? Uh, I thought that uh, nothing can exceed your Twitter followers, but I think the number of words you write by the end of your career might cross your Twitter followers. Well, Twitter has a character limit, and publishers are a little more than <laughs> I've been, I've been very happy to, uh, to be on your program before. And this book, in many ways, um, you know, I, I hadn't actually, when I began writing, uh, ever thought that 40 years later, there'd be a volume reflecting uh, quite such a range of my writing over the years as this one is. So I'm very pleased that it's there before you. Five million words is quite a remarkable feat, Dr. Tharoor. Uh, talk to us about the name of the book, uh, Why Pride, Prejudice, and Punditry. Just tossed off. I mean, you know, there's pride in a lot of my writing uh, about India. You know, I once said to an interviewer that India matters to me and I'd like to matter to India. And the way I tried to matter to India for the longest time was through my own writing. So that's where the pride bit comes in. Um, it, it goes... I suppose it went beyond that, and that I was, I was proud enough of my Indianness to make up, to put my sort of feet where my mouth was by actually uh, coming back to India after an adult lifetime abroad, um, and then and and start plunging into trying to make a difference for the Indian people. So there's all that. Um, prejudice is some of what I'm dealing with and writing about with the politics of those who have been promoting bigotry in this country. Uh, who have been dividing India on issues of religion and so on. And there's some sections in the book that address specifically such questions. And Panditri is a summary of all the commentaries I've published in so many magazines and now websites around the world that, um, that there's a huge, huge collection of stuff out there uh, some of which have made it, uh, have you know, been accepted into this book. Uh, we could have added a few more P's, but uh, but three were passion, perhaps, or, uh, <laughs> or or politics as a word itself. But we just thought three P's is enough. And since Pride and Prejudice is a well-known title, um, this added a slightly tongue-in-cheek air to the whole thing by saying Pride, Prejudice, and Punditry. That's all. I mean, to be honest, I can't say that a whole lot of thought went into the title. But there you are. So, Dr. Thiru, this book is divided into multiple sections, and uh, the first section is one of my favorites, where you talk about the leadership styles of, uh, you know, different icons of India. And uh, one thing jumped out at me that Gandhi, Nehru, Ambedkar, Patel, all of these seem to be remarkably different people with different leadership styles. How did so different people in conviction and culture um, work so well together towards a shared mission? Were there some things that held all of these differences uh, together in some shape or form? It's a very good question to which I'm afraid the answer is not terribly encouraging in terms of today's politics, which is that there was always a basis of mutual respect and mutual trust in each other's essential uh, commitment to India 
which sustained them even when they had major political differences between them. Uh, nobody called anybody else anti-national. Nobody accused anybody else of being seditious. No one thought that merely because somebody had a different point of view from them or followed a different religion or different anything else, that they were fundamentally at odds. Um, and, and so when Nehru formed his first cabinet, for example, he not only brought in Sadar Patel, who represented a very different strain of thought within the Congress party, but he brought in people like Dr. B.R. Ambedkar and, and uh, Shama Prasad Mukherjee, who were not congressmen, who had uh, been political opponents of the Congress party and stood for different points of view, and, and who, whom he wanted to see in his cabinet. There's a, an exchange of notes between him and, uh, and Sadar Patel, who, who would call whom? And he himself wanted to call on Baker and invite him to join his cabinet. Um, it, was, it was a very interesting thing that, which I believe in many ways is essential for all democracies, a certain level of trust um, that, you know, I may disagree with you, uh, you belong to another party, you profess a different ideology, but I know that in your own maybe misguided way that you still have faith in what India is all about and in what India uh, should be, and that you will strive for it with utter sincerity. Whereas um, you in turn disagree with me, you're happy to have defeated me, you will continue to oppose me, but you will take the stand that at bottom, uh, I am someone who has also the best interests of the country at heart. That kind of faith that kept them all together is sadly what is disappearing from our politics today where there, is, there are fundamental accusations of disloyalty to the nation. Uh, people are being demonized as anti-national. People are being told to go to Pakistan. Political opponents are being you know, slapped with sedition cases. It's becoming uh, a situation where uh, of the other side so bad and increasingly on both sides of the divide that ultimately it becomes almost impossible to conceive of losing an election and handing over to power handing over power to people you consider are basically bad or evil or, or, or anti-national. Now, these are things that can truly undermine faith in democracy. And, and in many ways, it's sad how far we plunged from where we were back in the 1940s. Dr. Tharoor, connect the dots. Uh, Julius Caesar, Jawaharlal Nehru, and uh, 21st century politics in India. <laughs> well, Nehru wrote a famous article. It is famous as something from notorious article in which he uh, attacked himself with an anonymous article in the magazine The Modern Intellectual Publication. Nehru wrote this article um, not long after the 1937 election, where he campaigned tirelessly throughout the country. Um, and he wrote this article in the Modern Review of Calcutta saying, uh, we must be wary of giving dictatorial temptations to Jawaharlal Nehru. Uh, this man is swayed by the adulation of the masses. India needs no Caesars. And this particular um, uh, article caused quite a buzz uh, in nationalist and intellectual circles in those days. And it was only sometime later that it was revealed that the author of this anonymous attack on Nehru was none other than Nehru himself. And he wrote it, I think, because he wanted to make the point that no individual 
is greater than the democracy India was hoping to build, uh, a free India would one day build, and that ultimately institutions mattered far more than, than individuals. And, and therefore, uh, to point out that you can't let one person become such a major hero uh, to the people that his head might be swayed, that was a very prescient warning, uh, which I think some people, shall we say today, do, would do very well to heed. India needs no Caesars. So Dr. Tharoor, what does Tagore mean to you? And if you were to host Tagore and Nehru on a podcast, what would you ask them? Oh, <laughs> I wonder actually um, whether um, uh, one would let the other one get a word in edgeways. I suppose out of sheer respect for seniority, uh, Nehru would definitely make room for, um, for, for Tagore to do much, much of the talking. Uh, I'm a huge admirer of Tagore. I, I think he's just one of the most extraordinary figures to have walked the earth in our country. Because uh, when you think about the things that the man has achieved as, um, as, as, as a towering figure uh, of, 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 of literature, of art, of culture, he was not merely an extraordinary poet, the only Indian to win the Nobel Prize for literature. Um, he was also a prose writer and essayist of the first rank. His articles, books, and monographs commanded a wide readership around the world. Um, he was a philosopher trying to develop a synthesis of Eastern and Western approaches. He was a political thinker with ideas of great depth and humanity, his essay on nationalism. He, he wasn't a fan of nationalism, but his essay on it is really, his speeches on it are really worth reading. He was a novelist. He was a short story writer. He was a playwright. Um, one of his plays, The Post Office, played in almost every theater in the world before the Second World War. He was also a remarkable painter, um, an artist with a poet's eye. He, he was a, a composer. He, he authored over 2,000 songs in which he authored both the lyrics and the tunes. So essentially founded his own discipline of Indian music, uh, Rubindra Shongit. He wrote the national anthems of two different countries and inspired a third, that is India and Bangladesh, and the third being Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka, the, um, the, uh, uh, the, the composer of Sri Lanka's national anthem translated Tagore's lyrics and set them to Tagore's music. And on top of all of this, I've already given you such a long list of accomplishments. He was also an educator of great vision and courage, founding Vishwabharati University at Chantiniketan to offer an authentically Indian experience of higher education, which followed systems and approaches of his own devising. So this is a a level of achievement so towering that it's difficult to imagine an individual in any culture who comes close to Tagore. And then he, he also had this tremendous worldwide impact. It's not even as if we're sitting here and recalling all this in, in hindsight. He was a global giant, right? When he was, he was to speak at New York's 4,000 seat Carnegie Hall in 1930, which itself was a rare honor because the hall is usually reserved for concerts, not orations. More than 20,000 people were turned away from the sold out event. So 4,000 in the hall, 20,000 turned away from the hall who created a mass of humanity on the streets outside that blocked traffic for miles and the New York Times and all the other papers wrote about it the next day. No living writer on the planet ever had something comparable happen. It's just, this man was a giant larger than we can imagine today because today there is no one. Who is such, you know, you, you take all the Bollywood stars and all the 
the major gurus and all the major players of music and all the rock stars, and you roll them all into one and give him the Nobel Prize for literature, and you still wouldn't end up with, with Tagore because what happened to the greatest artist and the greatest poet and everything else. It's just un astonishing. So when you think of the, the immensity of this man's accomplishment, uh, there just isn't, isn't anything to match. Now, Nehru I admire a great deal because I think he had one of the finest minds of any political leaders in the 20th century. And I, I am proud to say that I find him a great source of inspiration in my own work and, and, and my commitments to politics and so on. I find that what he stood for, the broad humanity of his vision, the extraordinary compassion that informed his politics, his, his extraordinary way with words, and particularly in English, he wrote so beautifully, uh, all of that make him a great figure. But I think in all fairness, um, the number of fields in which Tagore excelled was so much greater that I think if we had such a podcast, busy asking Tagore questions rather than uh, giving them equal time. Got it. The chapter on Tagore was my favorite in the book. I learned so much about, you know, the breadth of his mind, as you just talked about. It's just fascinating that somebody can have such depth and breadth. Um, I want to talk about the prison uh, as a source of uh, friendship and literary genius in the Indian freedom struggle. So what happened? Like uh, in the prison, it seems to be a magical place where uh, geniuses connect and write books and so forth. Tell us about that. I don't write about it much, but I have read about uh, prison life for many of these figures at that time. And you're right, it was an extraordinary bonding experience. It made people come very close. Um, and so some of the closeness that you saw, people who were imprisoned in the same uh, prisons together, uh, often exercising in the same compound, sharing ideas, talking, um, and so on, all that made a big difference. I mean, the last stint of imprisonment during the Second World War <coughs> went for almost um, six years, Maulana Azad, Nehru, many of them were the same place. Gandhiji was in a different place. But, um, but you had all of these people in, in jail together. They spent an awful lot of time talking to each other, exercising together, uh, cultivating gardens together, and so on. And, and the exchange of ideas made each other very, very strong influence on the other. Um, and that's not totally surprising, Utkarsh. In more recent times, it is often said that the Janta Party of 1977 was forged in the prisons of the emergency, that a number of different opposition parties with nothing in common, who were busy undermining each other up to 1975, got together in the prisons and decided to merge and create a, a, a giant opposition to Mrs. Gandhi's uh, Congress party of 1977 in that year's elections, and they actually won as a Janata party. And so you could argue that a close confinement uh, as a source of camaraderie is not something that should surprise anyone. Got it. You talked about uh, Maulana Azad. Um, I think there's a medical college, a well-known one, which most people recognize. But uh, one, what is the difference between Maulana Azad and, say, Muhammad Ali Jinnah? And uh, how come somebody as important like Azad is largely forgotten today? Yeah, I, I must say Azad deserves uh, far, far, far more of a memory. Um, he is annually remembered. In fact, we've just recently been through his but the celebrations, it's called National Education Day because he was India's first education minister and he laid the foundations for many of the major education institutions 
that we cherish today and that we that we all enjoy. But it's certainly true that um, he's never quite got his due. Um, he was uh, to compare him to Jinnah is, is actually quite inappropriate simply because Jinnah was ultimately a separatist, whereas Azad remains true and faithful uh, to the broader inclusive idea of inclusive India and, and to the notion that there is such a thing as a Ganga Jamni Tehzeeb, which brings Hindus and Muslims together. And he was, don't forget, far more rooted in Islamic faith, theology, and doctrine than Jinnah. Jinnah was a westernized, sophisticated, uh, Savile Row suit-wearing, uh, scotch and sausage-consuming, um, uh, not particularly reverential Muslim. He certainly wasn't known to pray five times a day or anything. Whereas Azad had mastered uh, Islamic theology in his teens, and he was a Maulana from a very young age. But he thought, and he believed passionately, as did some other uh, Muslim religious figures in that era, that it was actually a betrayal of Islam to seek to confine it to just one corner of India. He said that the people of Islam have brought their caravans into the sort of big journey that India is um, for centuries, and they belong as much to the soil of India as anyone else does. And therefore, why should they? have to subtract themselves and, and carve out a little corner. The, he believed very passionately in a united and pluralistic India. Um, so, so he and Jinnah were, if you like, the political polar opposites of each other. Um, and indeed, one could argue they also on a personal level, they couldn't stand each other. Uh, Jinnah disparaged him as a quote unquote Congress showboy. Uh, that is somebody who, whom the Congress was propping up to show its secular credentials. Uh, and um, and 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 uh, Molana Azad thought of uh, of uh, Jinnah as as uh, an irreligious person using religion as a shield to advance his naked political ambitions. And these two extreme views of each other uh, <coughs> put them obviously in very strong opposition to each other as well. Now I will say that if you look objectively at at Azad's contribution. Um, they were terribly important in the lead up to independence. He was president of the Congress party from 1940 to 45. Um, he was somebody who symbolized in many ways for India's Muslims, the fact that they still belonged in this country. After independence, he lived, I think, till 1958. So he had about 11 years after independence, most of which was spent as education minister in building up the educational institutions and in ensuring that education um, gave everyone a fair opportunity. And I thought he did a rather good job of that, quite frankly. Um, but that is, is a field in which, perhaps because education is not a subject identified particularly with one individual in most people's minds, uh, he doesn't come out as the giant that he deserves to be recognized as. I think that uh, we really do need to look back on, on Molana Azad with a great deal more, more reverence and understand how important he was. And I, if you ask me why, since you did ask me why you thought he wasn't being given that importance, I think the sad truth is it's because he lost, that his cause uh, failed in the face of Jinnah's separatist cause. And uh, the side that wins usually steals all the glory. And he was seen as, the, as the, the, the loser who stayed behind, as it were, when Jinnah went on triumphantly to create a nation. 
the, the last four sentences of this chapter are, are, are just so lyrical and poetic. I, I encourage everyone to read it. I think you talk about, uh, you know, the difficulty of being good and how even if you end up, you know, not as a victor, uh, sometimes there's merit in doing the right thing. And I thought that was a, such a beautiful way to describe uh, Azad Dr. Guru. I encourage everyone to really pay attention to the last four sentences of this particular chapter. Thanks, I want to uh, change. Yeah, it was something along the lines of the history of nations, the great rewards go to the winners and Azad by his own lights failed in the most important cause of his life. But in the history of the ideas that make up the intellectual underpinnings of any country, there must be an honored place for those who, whether they won or lost, had the great merit of being right. Molana Azad was right. That's his legacy and ours. You, you remember this word by word? That's, uh, that's astonishing. <laughs> well, not exactly the, the same words, but the thoughts, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Dr. Tharoor changing gears a little bit. Uh, I've heard that uh, you have a tea drinking problem. Is that true? Guilty as charged. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, now I've heard uh, in your book, I can't spot it, but I'll tilt the mug towards you so you can see it's pretty strong too. <laughs> um, so VK Menon also had a little bit of a drinking problem like you. I think, I think I've, I've fallen below his levels. He would uh, notoriously drink at least 20 cups a day. I've been there. I mean, I've got to that level, but I'm now stabilized at about six mugs, five or six mugs, which I, at worst you can multiply by two and a half. So if you if you get to 12 to 15 cups, if you like. And then cups are a very old fashioned measure these days, we're all mug users, but anyway, there you go. <laughs> so um, you miss having tea with him, you write about it in the book, uh, why? I don't know why, I mean, it's one of these things, I guess he was my father's friend, you know, and I'm, my first of all, he was older than my father to begin with. And, uh, and I was uh, a college student in Delhi uh, at St. Stephen's um, when, when he got elected, well, no, he, he got elected first. He got elected in 71. I came to college in 72. And my father said, you've got to see my old friend, you know, go and call on him. And I guess I was nervous. And, you know, um, those were not the days when you could pick up a mobile phone and call some VIP. Um, I wouldn't even have known where to get his number from. I'd have had to go to a, a pay phone in the college corridor and call the great man's office. I don't know how to do that. I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm trying to make excuses with hindsight. I do regret it because... I'm sure that if I had called and said, I'm Chandrasekhar's son, I want to call on him, he would have made room for me. Plus, he was at that point um, not in any great position of importance. He was not in ministry, not in government. Um, he was an, essentially an independent MP, and he probably would have had the time, and I would have benefited greatly from it. After he died, I read so much um, of, of, um, of what he had to say. For example, there's an entire fat volume um, by the Canadian a political scientist and historian Michael Brecker called India and World Politics, Krishna Menon's View of the World. Can you imagine about 400 pages just consisting of interviews with Krishna Menon, just to give uh, uh, the world an idea of what he was thinking about. And I've actually um, uh, read that as a college student and been hugely impressed with this very strong, all-encompassing worldview. Whether you agree with it or not, it's a different matter. Um, he was I think instinctively more left than I am instinctively. But nonetheless, he, he, he was a brilliant mind, somebody who didn't suffer fools very gladly, um, and somebody who um, had, had lots of quite in, intriguing candidate, uh, qualities. I mean, he was brilliant in English, um, spoke well and, and wittily and, and sharply, um, 
personally quite ascetic as High Commissioner. He occupied a, a single room in the premises of the Indian High Commission in London, rather than living in the sumptuous official residence that the government had purchased in Kensington Palace Gardens, where all his successors have gone to live. He was abstemious, he was a vegetarian, he was a teetotaler, but he made it a point to stride the world and finally cut bespoke suits and maintain a Rolls Royce um, as an official vehicle, believing it necessary to uphold the prestige of his post. And when he was asked, why are you wasting money on a Rolls Royce? It's not like you, it's not your style. He said, because he used to take a bus before he became high commissioner. He said, I can scarcely hire a bullock cart to call on 10 Downing Street. And, and that's the kind of guy, he didn't want a salary uh, throughout his years of public service, a man who basically drank tea. Uh, I think it was tea and biscuits or tea and toast, I can't remember, but he literally ate nothing, it was thin as a reed. Uh, he didn't need money for anything. He had no family, no wife, no children to support. Um, and so all he did was this work, 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 uh, a burning desire to drive the currents of history, uh, to lend his mind and his voice to the direction of world events, the course of India's future and so on. And, you know, Indira Gandhi and he had, had, had fallen apart some years before his death. But um, when he died, she, she had a wonderful line uh, uh, mourning him. She said, a volcano is extinct. Uh, that's the kind of guy he was. Got it. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Kapoor, I can see Lord Ganesha right behind you. Um, and there is a chapter on him in your book. Could you Ganesha. tell us about... Yeah. Could you tell us a bit about uh, how um, Lord Ganesh means so much to you and how he, you decided to make him an integral part of the great Indian novel? Uh, well, the great novel part is easier to tell because the Mahabharat, which I was, you know, I took the Mahabharat and decided to retell it. It had been retold for uh, 800 years from roughly the 4th century BC to the 4th century AD um, as, as this great tale of the not just the Battle of Kurukshetra, but lots of stories, digressions, events, incidents around it and leading up to it and after it and so on. And I said, why did we stop retelling it? So I said, imagine if somebody in the 20th century were retelling the Mahabharata in contemporary times, what would the story be about? Um, and of course, it was a story, therefore, of the nationalist struggle and the first years of independence. That, that became the, the great Indian novel. But the Mahabharata, as you know, was dictated by Ved Vyas uh, to our god um, Ganesh Ganapati. And so I decided that my narrator, who is a cantankerous soul politician called Ved Vyas, uh, who is uh, in his dotage and in his anecdotage, uh, he wants to dictate his novel. And, and uh, he finds a South Indian secretary um, uh, who, who uh, is willing to take his dictation. And the secretary, Ganapati, comes dragging his enormous trunk behind him, uh, playing on the double meaning of trunk. And that those are the secular users <laughs> of humility. Uh, in this novel. But anyway, so for me, um, uh, I've always been terribly fond of Ganesh Ganapati, um, well beyond before and after and beyond the great Indian novel. Um, he's, he's paunchy, he's full body, his long trunk with one broken tusk, um, and, and he rides his way across Indian hearts on a rat. So, I mean, it, it, it's quite astonishing uh, that a figure like this um, is, is worshipped as widely as he is. And, and I think uh, in many ways, his principal attributes, uh, quality that flows from both his wisdom and his strength is as a remover of obstacles to the fulfillment of desires. That's why um, few auspicious occasions are embarked upon without first seeking Ganesha's blessing, 
you have Ganesha on wedding invitation cards. No one, uh, you know, everyone wants Ganesha on his side before launching any important project. When you're starting a factory or acquiring a spouse, you want Ganesha with you on an invitation card on your, on your uh, initial puja, etc. Um, and the truth is that um, um, it, 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 it's true that because of that capacity, um, I get the sense that he's also a particularly accessible God. I mean, the thing about Hindu gods, which is actually the wrong word, manifestations of the divine, but that sounds too pompous, is that the Hindu rishis understood that God is essentially unknowable, formless, shapeless, uh, what we would call the nirguna Brahman. Um, but ordinary people, human beings, needed uh, to imagine God in ways that they could have access to in order to worship. In the old days, when the only concept of God was Nirguna Brahman, you actually had uh, rishis realizing that people are worshiping mountains and trees and rivers. We've got to give them something to focus their worship on. Um, and so the concept of the Saguna Brahman, God's with qualities, came up. But the rishis were smart. They said, since no one really knows what God looks like, you are all free to imagine God as you wish. And so any form of God that human beings consider is worthy of worship, may be so worship. And that's why if for you, God is a ten-armed woman riding a tiger, Durga, by all means, worship God that way. If you want God as a pot-bellied, paunchy, elephant-headed uh, uh, person sitting on, on the ground next to a rat and removing obstacles, that's fine too. And by the same logic, by the way, if you want to imagine God as a bleeding man suffering on a cross, the rishis would have no problem with that. Any form of worship. Swami Vivekananda very famously used to quote the Shiva Mahimna Stotram, which said that as many rivers, some straight, some crooked, go, go in different ways and directions and end up in the same sea, so also all forms of worship end up at the same divine. And that idea. So, so um, uh, uh, Ganesha um, uh, is, is reflective of this Hindu idea that the Godhead is not some remote and forbidding entity in the distant heavens. God is immediately accessible all around us. He takes many forms for those who need to imagine him in a more personalized fashion. If you're an Arya Samaji, you may not believe in imagining uh, a God as, as a figure. There are faiths which simply look at a mirror and see God in yourself. Uh, there are others who worship symbols like the Ling rather than, um, rather than the Natraj if they're worshippers of Shiva and so on. Uh, but at the same time, what is essentially important is that, um, that God or, or, or idealized image of God is merely a way for us to look for a crutch to overcome our own imperfections. And so uh, Ganesha, beyond any shadow of a doubt for me, was somebody who um, represented the imperfections, the physical imperfections that so many of us have. Um, I struggle with my waistline, and he does too, right? Um, um, he he um, combines the attributes of elephant, mouse, and man, um, and and, uh, and and he removes obstacles. So no wonder you 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 want him to uh, be your be a daisy for you. He has an unblinking gaze and a broad brow, which suggests he's a very intelligent god. Um, you know the famous story of. Uh, of how Parvati asked her two sons, Ganesh and Kartikeya, to go around the world in a race. And Kartikeya, the more vigorous and martial-minded of the two, 
ran around the globe faster than his corpulent brother ever could have dreamt of. Ganesh didn't even bother taking off after him. He rested for a while. Then he took a few steps around his mother and sat down again. Parvati reminded him of her challenge and he replied, but you are my world and I've gone around you. So he won the race. I mean, that kind of intelligence is also something that uh, I think, um, I think we, can, we can be enthusiastic about. So I have over a hundred little statues of, of Ganesha all over my house in pretty much every room in various forms made of various different materials. Um, it's become a, a minor obsession of mine, different sizes, different costumes even. I've Ganesh dressed as a lawyer, Ganesh dressed as a golfer, Ganesh as a writer, all of these things. So anyway, there we are. Fascinating. And uh, this chapter also captures so many uh, stories about his tusk, and I let the readers go through the book and figure it out. But uh, it's really um, enjoyable, you know. As I was introducing India to, um, you know, to people who are not from here, it was uh, a chapter that I made them read. Um, Doctor Tharoor, great Indian novel, one of your um, you know most fascinating books ever. It talks about India being born and reborn. Um, many people listening to this particular masterclass are startup founders and they wanted to know is India a startup? Ah, that's a very interesting question. I suppose um, you could argue both sides of this one and, and also put a date on it, right? So um, India in many ways is so timeless, so old, so ancient that to call it a startup would seem uh, preposterous. But the Indian Republic, as we know it and live in it today under the Indian constitution, did start up in 1947. Uh, to someone like Kangana out, it started up only in 2014. So you've got another startup. <laughs> um, I, I, I would say that as long as you have problems that require innovative solutions, even if there are old problems, uh, anything you can find new solutions to would probably merit the label of a startup. It's not that startups are only dealing in new technology with new problems and new ways of doing things. Startups are also trying to solve old problems in new ways. And to that degree, that's what India is all about as well. So yes, in that sense, India is a startup. Um, you know, Dr. Thru, in, in the book, you talk about uh, uh, heroic leadership. You talk, uh, quote Tolstoy, India, I think the modern India uh, is, a story of many heroes coming together and really shaping the trajectory of uh, you know the India we know today. Uh, do you think heroic leadership is important? What was Tolstoy's biggest problem with it? And uh, do you sort of agree with him on days, or do you believe that there is something called heroic leadership? CEO leading the way, or this big tall politician guiding uh, India or the world to the next level? It's a good question because this is an old and somewhat argue uh, an unending political debate. You know, uh, 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 there's an exchange in Brecht's famous play, The Life of Galileo, where one person says um, that unhappy is the country without heroes, and the teacher replies, No, unhappy is the country that needs heroes. So uh, <laughs> you can really take both sides of this. And uh, uh, Tolstoy uh, says heroic power isn't even possible. Because whereas the classic view, people like Thomas Carlyle, the British essayist, uh, who had this whole idea of the hero, his mastery and control over the social and political circumstances in which he operates, uh, Tolstoy said that history shapes and determines leaders. 
individual leaders are greatly limited by forces and constraints that are beyond their control. Kings and generals, uh, Tolstoy wrote, are merely history slaves. And they're often riding the crests of historical waves that are beyond their comprehension, let alone their control. So they think they're acting out of free will, but it's involuntary, according to Tolstoy. It's all um, just the course of history. Whereas the, the other view, the heroic view, is that history is nothing but the biography of great men, great kings, and so on and so forth. Um, so you've got a mixed view as well, which says, yes, large sweeping historical forces exist, but individuals have a role in epitomizing them, sometimes harnessing them. And the energy of an individual um, can be one of the forces that brings a historical force into being and gets it done. Gets it done. So um, an individual of talent can become a social force. It's a view of a chap called Georgi Plekhanov, who uh, was a Russian writer before the Soviet era, uh, who talked about this. And his argument was talented people can change features of events, but not their general trend. So he's kind of halfway between Tolstoy and Carlyle, right? Um, and, and so you've got all of these views possible. Uh, even in the 20th century, there have been big discussions on what kind of history, I beg your pardon, what kind of uh, heroic leadership is possible. Uh, I personally will in, uh, reveal my bias. I'm not a big believer in heroic leadership because we've seen this in our own country in the last seven, eight years. We've had a leader who's been all about I, I, me, uh, I'm the great hero on the white stallion with upraised sword is going to charge down, uh, cut through all the Gordian knots of all your problems and solve all the difficulties because I have all the answers. I know what to do. And we've seen how that hasn't worked in the last several years. Um, so I, I'd rather take uh, the view of one of the great um, heroes of the 19th century, Bismarck, who unified Germany and made it a strong world power. Um, uh, he says that essentially um, uh, my influence, he said, on the events I took advantage of is usually exaggerated. Um, we can't make history, he, he, he basically said about any individual, um, any more than we can make fruits ripen more quickly by subjecting it to the heat of a lamp. So um, that's, that's where the question of individuals come in. So I think you know, I rather like a slogan that uh, the Congress Party and Rahul Gandhi used in 2014. I'm, I'm sorry they stopped using it very quickly, but it was a very good slogan. And that was, man, he, hum. It's not about me, it's about us. That is collective, collaborative leadership, increasing the number of stakeholders in the solutions of every problem, uh, going beyond the notion of larger-than-life individuals, um, and and rather strengthen, as Nehru would have wanted, liberal constitutions hemmed in by institutional checks and balances, have a vigorous political opposition, a free press, and leaders who work collaboratively to solve problems. That's honestly my, my own bias, if you like. Um, I'm not denying there are historical currents. Who could have ignored the big forces of globalization? Maybe we can't ignore the galloping forces of deglobalization today. Um, and, and at the same time, I respect that individual personalities, convictions, and drive can also help shape uh, societies. But by and large, any society is better off with institutions than individuals. So not so much heroes as uh, embodiments of hope who would bring together collective energies. That's, that's the way I would rather go. 
We've spoken of CEOs, we've spoken of leaders. Let's talk a little bit about Indian intellectuals. You have written a fascinating chapter on Indian intellectuals. I would love to know, does uh, an Indian intellectual still matter? Particularly, if you could explain this particular sentence, genuine independence guarantees irrelevance. Uh, if you could help our community understand an Indian intellectual <laughs> or her relevance and this statement, that'll be super for us. Well, first of all, I should stress that this is a book that excerpts uh, from writings over 40 years. And that particular excerpt uh, on intellectuals is from my book, Reasons of State, which was published more than 40 years ago in 1981. It was my PhD thesis rehashed, um, which was on the making of Indian foreign policy. And in that, um, I had, a, in, in a study of all the forces that went into foreign policy was made, including political parties, the cabinet, the parliament, constitutions, institutions, the media, et cetera, I had a few pages on intellectuals, which almost as, as a snapshot of the way I thought and wrote at that time seemed to be interesting to include. Um, but, you know, it'd be very difficult for me to remember an exact sentence today from 40 years ago and defend it. I, broadly, my view at that time um, was that Indian intellectuals were conspicuously ignored, even though they're part of the establishment. Uh, their concerns were hardly seen as worthy of consideration by politicians. There was at best lip service paid to their abstractions. Uh, abstractions, I beg your pardon. Intellectual themes um, could sometimes be seized upon and converted to slogans, but the intellectuals themselves were sidelined. Sideline. And my entire argument about that was that though um, I can't come up with exhaustive answers as to why um, they are so irrelevant by comparison with other societies, take America, where the entire think tank industry has been evolved um, and, and effective and influential for decades already, uh, had been for decades already when I wrote this. And I wrote this at a time when the only think tank in India was the IDSA that was a government uh, quasi-government institution uh, set up and financed by the government of India. Uh, so um, remember the context, 1981, the irrelevance of the intellectual. Um, and uh, a very young man, I was uh, 26 when the book was published, 22 when the thesis was written. I'm not making excuses. I stand by it or it wouldn't be existing in today's book. But I'm just saying that uh, that's the background from which this uh, perhaps overstatement comes from that the Indian intellectual is irrelevant. Now, what was the particular sentence you asked about? It was genuine independence guarantees irrelevance. Yeah, so in other words, uh, the only way you could be relevant was in proximity uh, to the um, uh, wielders of power. That is that um, learning in our country, I argued, uh, was a means to an end. The end that matters in India is power. And anyone can be an intellectual, but only a few can be really powerful, exercise real authority. Therefore, the intellectual is irrelevant. I had a sentence in that chapter saying, those who can do, those who cannot theorize. And so that, that was a, you know, a paraphrase of a famous comment about teachers uh, way back in the 18th century. I think somebody said, those who, he who can teaches, he who cannot, I'm sorry, he who can does, he who cannot teaches. That was the famous line. So I was paraphrasing that. But anyway, I mean, the, the fact is that because, um, and I, I even mentioned, I think that um, uh, society in India has come to accord more respect, measured even by the yardstick of the prices commanded in the marriage market, 
to the most junior IAS officer or customs or tax official than it does to the most qualified academic or journalist. And so intellectuals are not truly members of the ruling class. Um, they're sitting in judgment on those whose seats they could gladly have occupied if they could. Um, uh, uh, they're passing verdicts on their betters. That was my analysis at the time. Now, a lot of this has changed. India has also evolved in 40 years. There's a lot more by way of think tanks, intellectuals with a little more clout. They're brought into government uh, in, in uh, sort of lateral entry kind of positions, advisors to ministers, all of that, which didn't happen much in the old days. But I'm just saying that um, the Indian intellectual, in my telling, is a poor relative of the Indian bureaucrat. And he knows it. So if he is truly independent, they definitely won't listen to him. If he's got some proximity to power, then he's less independent, but he might actually have some influence. That's the point I'm making. So the more independent you are, the more irrelevant you are, because the powerful won't listen to you. Yeah. There's also a very interesting story, which I encourage people to read in the book, uh, about you know, a person from a particular caste, a so-called lower caste, who Dr. Tharoor explains his uh, interactions with. Um, what is it? Chris, Chris Ellis and me, uh, Chris Ellis and I, or uh, that's that's the name of the chapter. Really enjoyed reading it. Ch Ch Charles and I, yeah. Charles, <laughs> Charles. Um, Charles Charles. Doctor uh, Sarur is primarily a mentorship platform. We enable others to make smart career choices. Uh, you've been you've blessed been blessed with lots of uh, really interesting mentors. One of whom seems to be Kofi Annan. We discussed it in our first uh, podcast. Tell us about how his influence changed the way you manage people. Now, as an MP and earlier as a senior, very senior UN diplomat, you must have been dealing with lots and lots and lots of people. How, would, how did Mr. Anand change the way you go about uh, management of people? You know, he, he's somebody who really, I mean, I used to joke that he had a PhD in people uh, because he absolutely... Um, he absolutely related to people in the most amazingly direct human way, right from the heart. Uh, his human touch was always his greatest asset. And I've seen him over the years, you know, talk to security guards and secretaries and ambassadors and prime ministers in exactly the same way, with the same respect, the same level of interest and so on. Uh, and that respect for the humanity of others is what I think um, made him particularly special. He was also a very, very good manager in the sense that he picked people he trusted and then he delegated to them, he empowered them. He wasn't micromanaging them. I mean, I, I've, I've really learned from that style of management myself. And I think I have a very young team around me in politics, uh, in, in my office in Delhi, for example, of the six people I'm working for me, five are in the first half of their twenties. Um, but the fact still is that these are folks um, whom once I have picked and seen how they're capable of thinking and working and, and so on, I give them their head. And as, as uh, I understand from Kofi Annan's style of management, that, that still makes me very responsible because if they screw up, the buck stops with me and not with them. They're acting on my behalf and on my authority and with the power I have given them. And the same is what with Kofi did. So with Kofi, um, I had always... Um, enjoyed his trust uh, during some very, very tough periods. For example, when handling the Yugoslav crisis, every instruction I sent out to the generals and special envoys in the field went in the name of Kofi Annan, but was signed by Shashi Tharoor. And 
And though it was my signature on it, um, ultimately, if anything went wrong, um, or, or if, 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 if there was a political dung hitting the fan, it would be Kofi Annan that to carry the can for it. But he, 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 he um, made me believe that, um, that I had the, the power to do that and to substitute my judgment for it. Um, and that's just, just absolutely special. These personal qualities, I think, um, ultimately matter far more uh, in a leader, in a manager or a leader, than qualities of intellectual brilliance, uh, oratory articulation alone. Those are all big assets. But a man here like who listened patiently, who always made the time for an inquiry about your family or some circumstance in your life. Um, every time visitors left his presence, they were overwhelmed by his warmth. Um, and that, I think those personal qualities were widely seen as the real key to his professional success. So he, he was a hugely successful person. Um, but he extended trust and loyalty. He stood up for his staff. He gave them credit for their accomplishments. He took full responsibility for their mistakes and they all looked up to him. And, and at the same time, he himself um, was not easily swayed by either pleasure or pressure. He was somebody, um, he was somebody who really uh, seemed to be anchored in himself rather like an Indian yogi. He was somebody who, who was unflappable, calm, dealt with the issues with a great deal of, of confidence uh, and sense of, of, of certitude. And at the same time, he helped people to fulfill their own potential, even potential they may not even have realized they possessed. So I think all of that made him, uh, made him a truly extraordinary human being. Plus he was a man of great integrity, um, deep personal strength uh, and, 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 and uh, a remarkable mind. Strong, serene, focused, just, just a, a wonderful man. I mean, uh, the last time I spent any real time with him was when he visited me after my wife passed away. And he spent an entire uh, evening, four hours. I mean, he had thousands of invitations to dinners and so on um, in, in Delhi when he was here only for two days. But he spent four hours with me, just he and me at home quietly. Um, and he was trying to impart his affection, his concern, his strength at a time of loss and grief for me. Uh, I must say that's absolutely, absolutely uh, remarkable human being. So at the end of the day, these are the things one will remember. That is that, um, that, that, uh, that decency, that, that, that strength, that humanity is ultimately what will linger long beyond the issues with which he dealt or the problems he tried to resolve. You know, new problems come up, old problems go to the realms of history books, but that humanity, that's, that's what made him truly special. On reading your book and uh, just learning about you in general, I, I've also seen that your parents uh, were huge influences in your life. You talk fondly about your father, uh, your mother. Do you mind telling us about uh, how your father's uh, life and death uh, affected you? Yeah, I mean, my dad basically... Uh, you know, created this sort of family in, in every sense of the term. I mean, he, uh, he grew up in, in, in pretty tough circumstances. He's, he lost his father when he was 10. Um, his elder brother, 13 years older than him, um, suddenly had to leave university and become the breadwinner of the family. Um, they grew up in a, in a small village in Kerala. The, the, the elder brother went off to Bombay, started off as a stenographer, and with sure hard work and brilliance, 
rose to become a senior executive of, of, of various firms, um, and then pulled his three youngest brothers out from, from the village and, and brought them up to, to um, educate them. In fact, brought them to London where he was working at that time. And my father went to, um, uh, he had begun college in, in Palakkad in Kerala. He went off to London after that and then started his working life there. And uh, it, it's quite remarkable that um, uh, a young boy, my father was uh, as a young boy walking uh, eight kilometers a day to high school from his village, very often barefoot. Um, uh, that boy then became um, the London manager of a leading Indian newspaper in those days, the statesman came back to run its Bombay office. Um, and that was again a choice that influenced my life because dad uh, didn't want to be a migrant. He was there from his student days. So he was there for 10 years. Uh, but throughout the time, he saw himself really uh, being in London the way another Malayali might regard himself being in Delhi or Calcutta. He was looking forward to going back at the first opportunity. And when an Englishman retired as the Bombay manager of the statesman, dad decided to go back uh, and take that over. And, and then he built his career up in India. I had my education in India. Um, so in many ways, I mean, the whole experience uh, of everything was, was shaped by him. Um, he's the one who sort of um, made sure that I, my, my instinctive introversion, I was happiest with my nose uh, buried in a book, sitting in a corner impervious to the world around me. Uh, he was the one who absolutely insisted that that wouldn't do, and that I should do all of that as much as I wanted to, but I also had to speak, to argue, to debate, to converse, to socialize. He sort of made um, uh, a sort of uh, a manufactured uh, a semi-extrovert out of me. Um, uh, he was one himself, but um, but he knew it was important. And he, he uh, whatever talents I have in public speaking, was because he drilled uh, in me from a young age how vital that was. Wrote me into into school debates initially. Wrote my speeches for me in debates, and and applauded me all the way. Um, so a lot of what I did, the choices I made, um, he made possible. But then unusually for his generation, he was also very liberal and he never tried to thrust his preferences down my throat. So um, I just happened to be very good at school and taking exams and kept coming first and everything. But when we were streaming uh, at high school, I chose humanities. And the teachers and the principal were so upset, they called my parents into the school and said, what is this? Why is our best science student taking humanities? And my parents, who like every middle-class Indian family wanted me to be a doctor or an engineer, were appalled and said, why are you doing this? And I said, because I can't stand the subject. And they said, you've come first throughout. And I said, yes, but I forget everything I've written in the exam the day after I've written it. Whereas you asked me about history or literature, and I will tell you things that were not taught in the classroom that I've read well beyond the syllabus. And that's because I care about those subjects. And so dad said, fine, follow your bliss. And I went into humanities and same thing happened. I did very well in the school leading exams. I um, won the gold medal for the highest marks in West Bengal state, which were also the highest marks in India at the time in the ISC examinations. And dad said, okay, so go and do economics. That's the most useful and profitable thing you can do with humanities. And I said, economics doesn't interest me. I want to study history. And he said, what are you going to do with history? Who needs historians? You know, what's the matter with you? Uh, and I said, but this is what really excites me. And so again, he let me go off. I did, I again aced those, I topped the university. So he said, look, at least write the exams for the IIM since you're still going to take the exam because IIM means you'll get a good job and a good salary and lead a good life, you know. 
And I did, and I got into the two IIMs that existed in the country in those days, came first in the IIM Calcutta rankings and second in the IIM Ahmedabad rankings. And I said, I'd rather go off to America and study international <laughs> politics at uh, the Fletcher School. And once again, bless my father so he didn't stand in the way. So I, 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 I look back at all that because even today, uh, people of my generation and younger than me are driving their children to study things they don't want to study, are forcing them to take up subjects and fields uh, that they don't particularly care for just to fulfill the parents' idea of what is good for them, or even to fulfill the unfulfilled ambitions of the parents. Uh, I once posted a cartoon, I'd have forgotten who drew it, a very good cartoon of an elephant, a big, large elephant, telling his baby elephant, my son, I want you to do all the things that I could not accomplish. For instance, I, I really want you to be able to fly. You know, and that's essentially what the Indian father is too often like. And I was blessed that my father wasn't like that, that he supported and encouraged me in everything I did. And I, one of the biggest regrets of my life is that he passed away quite young at 63, which is not much of an age these days and never really lived to see um, a lot of the things about my life choices and actions that would have made him happy. On the other hand, he also missed out on some of the most unpleasant setbacks in my life that would have hurt him greatly too. So there we are. Um, uh, the, the most important figure in my life uh, shaped me completely, was always and, and will always remain my father. Uh, Dr. Thur, what are some things we can do now uh, to build the noble mansion of free India? where all her children may dwell. If you can explain these lines and tell us about some constructive ways in which all of us listening to or chiming into this discussion can contribute towards that larger vision, that will be super helpful. But that was Nehru's vision uh, of India. And um, the extraordinary thing about, about uh, those words, where all her children may dwell, is precisely the inclusiveness of the message. Um, if I had to have a hashtag for what I believe in and stand for, that hashtag would probably be inclusive India. Because inclusiveness is a concept that actually embraces everything, whether it's people of different religions, people of different languages, people of different classes and communities, people of different opportunity levels, people of different genders, people of different sexual orientations, people of different uh, uh, biases and prejudices and proclivities include everyone, give everyone the same opportunity to build that mansion of free India, give everyone the same um, chance to dwell in that mansion that Nehru described. To my mind, um, that is ultimately the biggest lesson that I learned from the founding fathers of the nationalist movement and from Nehru in particular, was the message of inclusivity. Uh, and the Congress party tried to um, uh, embody that for a very long time. Now our Parties have all split up in so many different directions and so on. Um, but, but my message still remains that the most important choice we can make in our country is between inclusivity and exclusion, between um, uh, a lack of prejudice and bigotry, between um, uh, providing opportunities to all and, and having India shining only for a few. Uh, you know, these, these differences all around the theme of inclusion are to me a key question uh, that, that you have raised with that quote, and that to my mind embody what I believe are worth striving for and fighting for in tomorrow's India. Dr. Tharu, when you write, uh, how do you 
do you use uh, what methods do you use to understand or like what advice would you give to you know writers or people who are thinking of becoming writers to uh, define their audiences and how do you understand ways in which or know that how to make your writing more compelling to articulate in a way that it's actually uh, catering to all the needs or the points you're trying to communicate to the members or the audiences. Right. Well, you know, I started off writing uh, for Indian magazines in India and kept meeting my readers uh, in my own social circle, as it were. Uh, so that was one very good way of understanding your audience and getting their feedback in that um, when I wrote in the Illustrated Weekly or Eves Weekly or JS Magazine or Youth Times or whatever, uh, many of the people I met in the course of the, the normal day, whether they were friends of my parents uh, who read the adult magazines when I was still a teenager, or classmates and peers who read the youth magazines I wrote for, um, many of those things, to be very honest, um, uh, related to their daily lives and involved opinions that they felt just as qualified to exchange with me or disagree with me on. And so you, you rapidly get a sense of your audience, what your audience wants, how you address your audience, and what works and doesn't work with them. And that's what I found myself doing. Of course, then I started living abroad and I had an international audience um, and that became a little more challenging, but I was no doubt in my mind that my principal audience was essentially Indians like myself, namely urban English language educated Indians uh, whose sensibility was not very different from mine, whose experiences were what I had grown up with and whose our worldview could therefore be something that I could relate to and they could relate to mine. Now, that didn't mean I didn't want to challenge them. I did. And I did try to come up with ways of thinking about things that opened their eyes and provoked them and so on into thinking differently. But nonetheless, these were actually um, people who, who were my natural audience. And I would urge those who are writing to have a pretty clear idea in their minds of who they're writing for. If you're writing a textbook, you would know, you know, what grade level or what students or what subjects you're writing for. And the same sort of applies to the writing of a book, a novel, whatever. I would say there's always a primary audience in the mind of the author. And for most authors, that primary audience, as with me, consists of, of people rather like the author herself or, her, or himself. Um, and therefore, that's, that's what they should do. Now, if having written it, they also incidentally acquire a larger audience, a worldwide audience, or an audience through translations, that's a bonus. But the work must be authentic to that primary audience, in my view. And the thing about fiction in particular, that's the kind of writing you're most curious about, is that it, 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 any slice of the human experience can be of interest to people uh, in any part of the world. It's not just that you, you, know, you, you write for uh, uh, urban Indians and nobody else can read it. Of course, others can read it and others do read it. But the sensibility from which you're writing and the audience to which you're writing uh, inevitably is, first of all, the, the audience that you have in mind uh, when, you, when you're writing. Uh, is that, was that your question or have I gone off on a tangent? So that was okay. it. Thank you so much, Dr. Tharoor. Uh, loved your book. I uh, really appreciate your time. And I hope you enjoy your dinner. The book also has a huge lesson on your mum, which I expect everyone will read and relish because it's uh, super interesting. 
Thank you so much. I just noticed that there are a dozen questions in the chat, which I've obviously not read while listening to your questions and talking to you. But with everything else, all I can say is sorry to let you down this time. We'll keep the dialogue going and no doubt we'll have another opportunity, this time probably not around a book, uh, to sit with Utkarsh and, and take some of your questions. Maybe we'll have a time when all we do is Q&A and we don't talk about any book or anything else and I'll try and address your questions there. But thank you all very much. Thanks Utkarsh for some great questions and all the best to all of you. Do read <coughs> Pride, Prejudice and Punditry on all the subjects that Utkarsh has raised with me and more.